Open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Good to see everyone this morning. Um, two things as an announcement. One, there there is a ladies' breakfast, fellowship breakfast on the 27th, I believe it is. Uh, is that right? Yes. Yes, very well. So it's the 27th. Still a Blue Ridge Bagel uh, at 8.30. Very well. So January 27th, this is a, an opportunity uh to uh, obviously get together as ladies and encourage each other in in the word and truth and, and fellowship together. The body of Christ is centered around obviously teaching, exhorting each other in the word and in truth, and encouraging each other to walk in truth, walking into a way that is pleasing as as unto the Lord. And so two two questions I want to come out with today and as as we walk through we'll we'll see the time we have. I want to make sure we allot enough time to last week we walked through second corinthians 5 we're looking at uh, our first 10 verses there and we're going to complete that thought uh these thoughts this morning um i leave thursday for for france i guess i go i get to go back and teach once a year uh meet with some of the elders in the church there preach and i get to meet meet up with my brother before i leave as well since he's still there so just it's a good. It's a good ten days. Moves pretty fast, but uh, just pray for your, um, cherish your prayers as we tra- as we travel. More and more of these doors sliding off these planes. Uh, <laughs> like I don't know, I might want to check them out myself before uh, we take off. Uh, but uh, just be be in prayer for that. Nathan is going to be pick up the teaching, and we've discussed already. Just keep going through the text in Second Corinthians five, so we don't keep hopping back and forth. So he'll just pick that right back up. We're teaching the text, right? So it doesn't really matter who's teaching it. The continuity, con- you know, the congruency is found in the text, not in the not in the speaker. Hopefully, so walking through this. So last time, there, there are two questions. So two questions I want us to, to really flesh out the end at the end today in the second half. I'll give us time to do that. One answer, two questions. Two questions that come at the end of these verses, and we'll, we'll walk back through. We'll, we'll connect all the dots here, but. If you look at our text, one through, let's look at that first, just the, uh, the entire text. We start in verse, we went back to verse 16, because verse 16 is his initial uh, statement he makes, so we do not lose heart. And from there, he, he ties to that uh, five statements, five conjunctions that tie, that bring uh, an explanation as to why he doesn't lose heart. So he walks through that. And then in the second part, so we're going to start today uh, going through verse 6. He makes a second statement, so we are always of good courage. So he picks that back up. We know we don't lose heart. We're of good courage. And he makes two statements at the end of verse 9 and 10. And those are the two questions in just a moment that we want to, to flesh out and, and unpack in such a way that, I mean, you want Scripture to change the way we think and the way we act, right? That's, that's, that's our greatest challenge. And he says two things in verse 9. First thing he says in verse 9, he says all these things. He, he, he brings a conclusion to his thoughts here. So whether we are at home or away, because he talks about being in a tent or being in a heavenly body, he says we make it our aim to please him. So what does it mean to please the Lord? I think every believer is going to say, I want to please the Lord. I mean, if a believer doesn't say that, we really have a problem here. You know, I want to please the Lord. And somebody says, I don't know if I right? Every single, I tell you, many, many times in counseling, 
you're, you, you know you're facing a long, drawn-out problem that's going to take not three days, but three months or six months to fix or to walk through. You know, we have a pattern of sin that we've been involved in five, six years, but we think in, in five, six hours we're going to fix it and turn the tide around. No, it takes a lot more time than that to, to work through that. But one of the first premises I lay before someone is that, okay, especially if you deal with a couple, one individual, but two people, says, you're both professing believers. Do you both desire to please the Lord? Because if we both desire to please the Lord, we're going to have a solution at the end of this. If you both desire to please the Lord, then we're, we're going to come to a, a God-pleasing reconciliation, forgiveness, and what it takes to, to reconcile and be pleasing as unto the Lord. So then it gets a little uncomfortable very quickly because they quickly realize that what it means to please the Lord might be totally 180 degrees opposite of what they were doing or where they were going. So that's the first, the first challenge it presents there. I want to, us to take time together to unpack that. And then you notice in verse 10... He brings another conjunction here. It says four. So in saying that, he brings, he brings causation to his second statement. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, in, in, in Christianity, we don't, we understand there's, there's judgment. We don't necessarily understand exactly what he means by a believer being judged, whether good or evil. What does that mean? We're going to get to that near the, near the end here. But I find it interesting that he does, he links, through the word usage here, he links a desire to please the Lord because there's an understanding that he's going to face judgment for his actions in his body, in his present condition. He's going to answer as unto the Lord for, whether, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So he, he makes that, that direct link between, I want to please the Lord and I want to... For because I know I'm going to answer for for my actions and my life. So that's that, there's that big weight that he brings in, and he, that's, he concludes this portion here, these ten verses, with with that thought. We talked about last time when we had not exactly walked through everything here and completed it. We walked through the first part of this chapter. We discussed a little bit his um, these these five affirmations. We talked about what it means to be renewed. As a continual process, and I, listen, we always need to be reminded of that continual need to be renewed uh, day by day. You might feel great one day, you, and you've been in the Word. I mean, the other day I was reading through Psalm sixty-nine. I was, wow, I was challenged. I was encouraged because he talks the reproach of men, but he talked about the praise of God. And but boy, two days later, I'm like back in the slump again. And like, what happened to the what happened to the mountaintop in Psalm 69? Now, two days later, I'm like, oh, what was me again? You know, I go back to the Word, and you don't. It's it's something we have to continually be renewed. And if you feel like you're in a spiritual slump, well, the first thing you need is what get back to the Word, be renewed in the Word, be renewed in prayer, and and lean lean upon the Lord. We talked about. Also, the, the debate around this passage, because the debate around the passage is, is especially between Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 15 and the 2 Corinthians 5, he uses the same language as it pertains to uh, the resurrection and the coming of Christ. So there's debate around, well, you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the resurrection of the body as a separate event later. And 2 Corinthians 5 gives the impression that you're, you're now absent from the body present with the Lord. So where does that resurrected body come from? At what point do, do these things take place? And we just, want to, we just address that, 
some of the similarities between those two different texts, similarities with 1 Thessalonians 4. So we, we unpacked that a little bit last week and uh, to give us a little bit of, of, of perspective on that. We do come back to, okay, what do we do know? Every believer, regardless of how they perceive the things to come, we believe in the return of Christ. We believe in a resurrected body. We believe, of course, new heaven, new earth. So we have that, that common ground. Some of the discussion is, is how do these things unpack? When do they unfold? We didn't get into all that, but more into the agreement that Paul's focus in 2 Corinthians 5, the context in 2 Corinthians 5 is, is his, uh, I'll put it down here. He says, the believer at death is actually in the presence of God while in the presence of the Lord will not receive his glorified body until a second coming where he will raise and transform them. This is a true of Old Testament believer as well. So Paul's focus here is in the hope of, like he describes at verse 6, he's of good courage, he doesn't lose faith, he's of good courage, knowing that I, what I'm experiencing now is but transient. And so we walk through why he doesn't lose heart. We walk through, uh, we didn't really go through the last two, so let me just maybe look at verse Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 2. Now, I know 80% of you were here last week, so some of you are getting a, uh, an intensive, cu- getting caught up, and others are getting a reminder of, of what we had seen, what we had seen last week. Um, so his focus in Second Corinthians 5, and then walking through these, 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 these five steps, rather. So, let me see, verse, chapter 5, verse 2. We went through the verse 17, light momentary affliction. We talked about the, the uh, temporary nature. We talked about the contrast between the weight of affliction versus the weight of glory, saying there's no comparison, comparison between those two. Chapter 5, verse 2, he says, For in this tent we, we groan. Uh, I was blessed. Some of you may have been there on, on Friday for Harold, Harold Nash's uh, memorial service and his passing. And uh, I brought... A little something we'll read near the end from a part of what he was written in his obituary here. Uh, but Brian's, uh, Pastor Farrell's, preached for the memorial service, and he, he took it from Second Corinthians 5. And uh, just encouraged to, to take this passage because in chapter 5, verse 2, he says what? For in this tent, we, we groan. This groaning is not a, a groan in pain. It's a groaning as in a, a longing for we long for, longing for what? Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. He said the groaning is a longing and a, a deep yearning and desire for something. You know, so he, we, we, he, he walked through this text and obviously for someone like someone who just passed, like Harold contemplated the fact that he just, he passed from this earthly tent to a heavenly dwelling, being in the presence of the Lord. In chapter 5, verse 4, the last verse here, he says, For while we are still in the tent, we groan, being burdened, but not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by by life. He doesn't wish here to be unclothed. He, he wishes rather to be fully clothed and completely uh, clothed in his his righteousness and his in this heavenly dwelling that that awaits. So a couple of things that we we wrap up in these thoughts here again. I'm I'm, I'm bringing us to what galvanizes his behavior, what <clears throat> motivates Paul, what brings him to this statement in verse nine. So what what leads us to this verse nine statement? What it means to be pleasing as as unto the Lord. I have but one aim. 
I have but one aim, he says in verse 9, it is to please him. So not only does he not lose heart, he says he's always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight, as he says here. And yes, he says we're, we're of good courage, we're bold, we're, we're confident. And I make it my one aim to please the Lord. I, we, I mentioned that last week to kind of give us a, a to, to put the bookends on it last week, but I want to unpack that a little bit more a little bit more this morning, what it means to make it our aim to please the Lord. First of all, this, this word usage in verse 9 that we see elsewhere, I put two other passages that we find it here. We find it in Romans 15 where he says, I make it my, my ambition to preach the gospel. I would love my testimony to be my ambition. I mean, we're, we're American culture. We love ambition. We, like, we love ambitious people. People who have goals, who have ambition, you know, and, and we, they're, they're pursuing their best life. They're pursuing greatness. They're pursuing wealth. They're pursuing power. I mean, they have ambition. What, what is your ambition? <coughs> I hope that whatever you're doing as an occupation is not your ambition. I hope your occupation is a means to pursue your ambition, but I hope that's not your ambition. I hope your ambition is not found in in, in the mechanics of something that you're doing or in uh, another aspect of what you're, you're doing as unto the Lord, but you're doing in the Word. I hope that's just a means to fulfill your true ambition, which is a desire to, to please Him. So he, Romans 15 uses the same word to describe an ambition. First Thessalonians 4 says, to use the word aspire, and to aspire to live quietly is the same word that you aim for, you desire for. So this idea of what you're ambitious about, what you aspire to do, is the word that's used for for the word here as my aim. I tell you, you can't, I don't think, I mean, for me, when I read verses 9 and 10, you can't read verse 9 and 10 and uh, ask, you know, the word is there designed to, to challenge our hearts and mind, right? What is my ambition? What What do I aspire to? I hope that I was talking to a parent the other day at the uh, during Spirit Week, talking about athletics and you know so and so person and you know in the right place of athletics. They were just saying something about their child playing athletics. I says, you know, ultimately, every person discovers the futility of these things. The only question is when they discover it. Now, either you discover it as a thirteen-year-old. Or as a 16-year-old or as an 18-year-old. Or you discover it as a 65-year-old. Everyone discovers at one point the futility of some of the things that we aspire to and that we're ambitious about. The question is when do you realize that it's futile and your only one ambition should be to please the Lord? What my, my, my greatest, one of my greatest burdens is, is seeing adult believers wait they have a lot of aspirations. They have a lot of ambition for things that, of the world. And they wait until the twilight of their years. What do you call that? That in, I'm not there yet, so I don't know. I have to ask somebody else. But when you, when you look at that, when you start seeing the horizon, then you say, okay, I'm 65 now, and I'm going to start giving, I'm going to start giving unto the Lord. I mean, why do we give the leftovers of our life to the Lord? Why, why do we give what's left? After I'm done pursuing my own ambitions, why do we give, honestly, the crumbs of our lives? 
We're going, we're going to give them the, the last five years. Oh, now, now I could serve the church because now I've got time to. What, what, what a tragedy. We haven't been redeemed and saved so that we can live our lives and pursue our own ambitions and desires. We, we've been redeemed and saved so that we can pursue to please to please him. And that word pleasing, I'll put two other verses here that's used that. Romans 12 is well known for that. It said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, or, or pleasing, the same word here being used, pleasing to God. I mean, we, we've been purchased by his blood for the purpose of what? And here's Paul's appeal. Paul's appeal in Romans. I remember Romans was written from, from Corinth, from that same context. He says, you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice, holy, a pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world. He uses the word again at the end here in the second part of this verse 2, that which is good and acceptable and, and perfect. Ephesians 5 is well-known as well. Some of these well-known verses, right? Uh, discern that, that which is pleasing, pleasing to the Lord. We're called to discern what is pleasing unto the Lord. That should be our, our primary drive in everything that we do. What is pleasing to God? Now listen. Doesn't mean that God's asking you, you know, I'm going to buy a car. Should I get a white car or a gray car? What's pleasing to God? But what, what is, what does He mean? How, what does it mean to you when He says, "What does it mean to please the Lord?" Not not just in the platonic discussion of it up here in in academic stratosphere. What does it mean to your personal life to say, you know, what does it mean to please the Lord? What is that pursuit? How and how can we? And how do we please the Lord? What, what are some of your thoughts on that, even from even within this context or perhaps other verses that, you would, that would come to mind? Because the Bible speaks a lot about what it means to please the Lord. So what, what are some of our understanding? How can we please the Lord? Obedience. Obedience. What does God say about obedience and pleasing? I'd rather you obey than offer sacrifices. Well, he said, if you, if you obey me, you love me. If you obey, you, if you obey me, you love me. I mean, isn't that what you expect out of your children? I mean, if your child would say, I love you, Dad, and turn around and do exactly what you told him not to do, you'd be like, time out here. Let me pull the belt out. I mean, time out. <laughs> Obedience. Obedience. If you were to challenge and say, Lord, show me ways I can be pleasing to you, the first thing he's going to show you is ways you can obey him. And if you're not obeying him a certain way, I would trust the Spirit of God that bears witness would say, hey, you know this unsettled business over here where you offended somebody and you know it and you walked away from it? You need to go make that right. I mean, hey, pleasing to the Lord is, is a nice verse to put on a frame somewhere in our living room, but living it out is a much greater challenge than just quoting and memorizing a verse. How do you live it out? That's one thing I like about First John. When you go through First John, First John talks about all the spiritual contradictions we experience. You say one thing, but you do another. Uh, those same things don't mix. In our minds, those things mix. In God's minds, they don't. Please, what's pleasing unto the Lord? What's some, what's some other thoughts on what it means to please the Lord? Being humble in spirit. Being humble. Being humble in spirit. Other ways? I would say being uh, careful to avoid mysticism. Just uh, the 
God's laid out what's pleasing to him in his word. We don't have to try to you know, seek some genie in our Trust, trust the word. One thing that's been weightier in my heart is not just the inerrancy of the word, but the sufficiency of the word. Is the word sufficient? Most of us say the word is true. I mean, a few people out there on the left wing will say the Bible has errors. But the center of evangelical world is going to say the word is inerrant. Is it sufficient, though? Pleasing the Lord is trusting him at his word, being obedient to his word. What else? Any verses come to mind? Get your little phones there. You can Google it quickly. What's the words that we have? On? I think knowing and doing the will of the Lord, First Thessalonians 4. It's a 4, uh, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And it goes on to lay out what that is. Yeah, I put, I put down First Thessalonians 4 saying, you know, you receive right how you ought to what, walk and to please the Lord. When Paul says, whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God, whether we eat or whether we drink. And so there's an aspect into which it's not just these specific acts of obedience that we do, but it should be all-encompassing for our lives. So if we can eat and drink to the glory of God, then med school to the glory of God we can preach the word from the pulpit from the, to the glory of God we can do any job to the glory of God and so this verse is not just about specific points in our day but rather the, the whole of our lives the whole of our lives remember Muslim once you know witness the Muslims in France a lot of a lot of Muslims and uh, one Muslim said you know the difference between Christianity and Islam is Islam is a way of life because, of course, he's comparing to French Catholicism. But he's saying the Catholics, they go to church at Mass and confession. And Islam is a way of life. What a shame. Christianity should be a way of life. And yet it, it's not always what it, what it should be in that regard. I think of uh, looking at different passages specifically that talk about pleasing the Lord. I saw, I was reading through um, a number of passages that talk about not pleasing man but pleasing God. So the contrast between uh, what it means to please man and versus pleasing pleasing the Lord. How fear of man comes into that, perhaps. Uh, so, not pleasing man, but but pleasing the Lord. Um, he talks about here, in, in, even in our passage, where he talks about um, verse seven: "For we walk by faith, and and not by sight." Hebrews eleven picks that back up right by saying that uh, without faith, it's impossible to what to please Him. Walking in faith. Being men and women of faith is pleasing, and walking in faith is pleasing unto the Lord. What does that mean to walk in faith? What does that mean? We are men and women of faith. We walk in faith. What, is, what does that mean to you? In obedience, yes. In trusting God at His Word. I mean, because walking by faith, not by sight, is mean your 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 faith with your 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 faith with something from a on a circumstantial level. You're experiencing something here, and yet you need to trust the Lord that in faith, evidence of things that are not quite seen, you don't see how necessarily this is going to be solved or unraveled or solution, but you trust the Lord and you take him at his word. How many times in counseling I've told somebody, listen, do the right thing because you trust the Lord in faith that this is true and right to do so, and trust the Lord on the back end for the results. You're concerned about how it's going to play out. 
you're concerned that if I if I forgive, that they're not going to feel the real weight of what they've done, or you feel like if I don't do this, they won't. And, and, and you're just do what you know Scripture tells you to do, and walk by faith and trust the Lord. And in doing so, we'll be we'll be pleasing, pleasing to Him. Hey Jeff, just to piggyback on that is uh, Proverbs 15. A gentle word turns away wrath. So I say that how we respond to conflict and trials and tribulations in our life is, is an action of pleasing the Lord. So you're careful about how you respond to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stuart Scott always says that what happened to you is not as important as how you respond to it. The real problem is how you respond to life. It's not what happens to you because he can help you. He has to give you the grace to get through those things and he's, he's aware of it. But how do you respond to life like you're saying, is do the right thing, respond in the right way. That's more evidence of trusting God. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a beautiful piece about the judgment piece. Because the judgment piece, when the works will be examined, it's not to the praise of man. The works will be a praise of God's grace in our lives, mm-hmm. and it'll be evidence of the redeemed. Not evidence of great and faithful men, but evidence of great and faithful God and his manifestation of his grace. So he, he, he completes that thought in, in, in verse 10. I can remember um, helping my children navigate through offenses. You know, when you're young and you're, you're worried about, I'm going to call it peer pressure, but what someone, you're worried about what someone else thinks, you're worried about this, you're worried about that, and making right decisions, and it seems so complicated. Once you just narrow it down, I, I told one daughter once, it says, you know, the, the thing is, one day you'll realize that the only thing that's going to matter is, does this please the Lord? It'll take you time to get through that. I said, hey, it is nice to be on the other side of that at 55. And it's not you don't care what people think, but you care so much about what God thinks. And you care so much about what it means to please Him that everything else is gets blurry in the distance. So... I put down near the end here, just, hey, one thought for us is that, that should be our prayer. I trust that is your prayer. And if and I know it is your desire, may, may, you, may you pray that. Lord, may I, may I be pleasing unto you as a wife, as a husband, as a father, as a mother, as, as an employee, as a worker, as a, as a doctor. As an, may, I, may my life be a, a life where I walk by faith and obedience to you and trust in your word. And it might be a sweet smelling savor to you. May I be pleasing as unto you. Nothing else matters. And then, and then he he brings this 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 piece in the back end here, which really brings not just hey, we're also going to be judged. But he says for. In other words, he he links it to the fact that I know this, and one understanding of that is I'm going to find myself before the Lord. I mean, can you even fathom what it means? Verse ten. And I want to I want us to, to unpack this as well. Verse ten, four. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So in other words, he he makes a clear correlation between I want to please him, and one of the driving factors in that is I know I'm going to have to answer for a life that is not pleasing unto him. And I don't know about you, but we can all imagine what it's like to stand before the Creator universe. I can't even imagine what that looks like. What I know for sure is that no one's going to be standing up proud. We're all going to be humbled. We're all going to be bowed down, and we're all going to be prostrated before Him. And, and 
And we're going to be also aware of the flood, the flood of regrets of, of a life that was at times wasted and not well spent or not pleasing unto him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or, or evil. A, a, a quick, I, I do think that the debate, the debate around this text is often the idea, well, how can, the, how can the believer be judged given that he's been forgiven? And part of that, I'm not going to say confusion, part of that debate centers around the, the term good and evil that is used here. But there's different commentaries on that. I think MacArthur does a good, jo- good job unpacking this piece where he just talks about that there's a moral evil and there is another word, phallus, that's used here. That's a uh, word that's used to describe what is useless and worthless. So really what he's describing here is not moral evil, like in other words, we, because we've been forgiven for our sins as believers, but we are going to hold an account for, for that which was useful, good, and that which was worthless, that which we poured into. And, of course, we talk about the, the judgment of the, what is left behind, wood, hay, and stubble, etc., I believe at the time of, of you know, there, there is question as to when this bema seat, the word uh, judgment seat is the word bema seat. The reason why they usually say bema seat because they're going to contrast with the great white throne of judgment for the unbelievers in, in Revelation 20 and 21. So they contrast with that, which then the, the unbelievers will, will be judged, and we'll, we'll see that as well in these verses. I believe that the, the bema seat will be at a time of, um, when the Lord returns, not at the time of our. Th- th- again, you could, what you discover about the text. We've been around Christianity for a long time, and there's been a lot of authors and a lot of erudits, which is a lot of uh, thinkers. So they could find a lot of things to debate about, and so uh, <laughs> debate. You know, when when does this particular moment happen in time? I believe that it's going to be at the second coming for two reasons. One, because that's the moment where we receive our crowns and we give our crowns also and lay them at the feet of Christ. And also in 1 Corinthians 4, he talks about, speaks of the judgment after the passing of time. Passing of time is, of course, man was created within time. So when the Bible talks about the end of time or the passing of time is, is because that appointed time that man exists in, there's, there's no more time. When we talk about eternity, since the clock keeps on ticking, there's no more clock. You know, we, we live within a time frame because God created time and placed man within time and first corinthians 4 he speaks of judgment after the passing of time so i believe that those will come whenever the lord whenever the lord returns but one thing that's important for us here is not necessarily that aspect of it but one paul stresses the personal nature of this judgment continually here and other passages as well he's talking about a, a generic judgment he makes it a point to make sure that we understand that what we're each going to, that each one may receive uh, what he has done. Uh, so there's a very a very individual nature. It's not just a, a God judging the, the church, and we're going to be able to hide in the back row a judgment, right? Uh, we're going we're gonna to be able to sit in the back behind the six-foot-five guy, and he won't be seen in, in the shadows of someone else. No, the spotlight's going to be on us in that moment, and we're going to walk right up there and stand, stand before the Lord. Um, Romans 14 gives that admonition as well. It says, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess. And so then each of us will give an account of himself to the Lord. 
we don't we don't really live under that weight of that understanding and that listen we could only try to to picture what that means you know but i do think that should be something that yes there is a rightful place to say we're going to give an account i mean when you when you tell when you explain to someone that your life and you explain to your children early on it's amazing what we teach our kids it's not always exactly what we live every day, but we know we should be teaching it, so we teach it to them. I says, you know, you do realize your life is not your own. You're a steward of it, and you're going to give an account of how you stewarded the life that God has given to you. We'll stand, we will all stand before the judgment seat, the beaming seat of God. We'll all stand individually before the creative universe. One of the commentators puts it this way. He says, you will give an account of how you fulfilled his purpose for you on earth, namely to trust him, love him, and obey him, and display his excellence in the world. You will give an individual account to to God. Look at First Peter chapter one with me, if you will. Let's go over to First Peter. And then after that, I want to just ask that that question for us to you know to to consider what will we be judged for how you know what will we be judged for look at first peter chapter one you gotta give ourselves a, a little bit of a context there look at the first um you see chapter one let's look at verses just verse three first uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now look at verse 13. Therefore... Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves in fear throughout the time of your exile. Knowing, I think we'll verse 19, knowing that you, that you, were, trans, you were ransomed for, from the feudal ways, right, the worthless ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of the Lamb, without blemish or without spot. God, we were not redeemed so that we can pursue our own desires here. We were redeemed so that we can walk in a way that is pleasing unto Him and fulfill His purposes through our lives. And God, and we will give an account for that. We will give an account for that. Um, I put down... And this is just my way of writing. Has I said, if if this does not get my attention, then what does? The unbelieving person who does not know God does not fear God, but the believer, out of love for the Lord, 
out of belonging to the Lord, out of desire and ambition for the Lord, he, he is he is concerned. He does know, I'm going to have to give an account as unto the Lord. We will be judged for what we have done in the body. Only works done as, done as pleasing unto the Lord will have eternal value and inherit eternal eternal crowns. What what kind of what things will what things will we be judged for? How we live our lives for him. How we live our lives for him. Take it down one one layer. How do we manage our families? Fathers, did you raise your children in the admonition of the Lord? Husbands, did you love your wives as Christ loved the church? Wives, did you submit to your husbands as unto the Lord? Ooh, gets no more. Gets a little, like a little too too far in the trenches there, right? Did you give freely as unto the Lord of your wealthy goods? Okay, let's not talk, let's not talk pocketbook here. Let's not talk money. Let's get off money. Um, did you? Did you use language that was pleasing unto the Lord? I mean, you, you're going to have to take it down to that level of understanding that I'm going to have to answer not for what Billy Bob has. I'm going to have to answer for what I've got. One of the driving things that whenever I was um, I came back to the States, I was 17 years old, three months shy of being 18. It's coming out of the summer. And I... Went to college. My desire was to join the Air Force. I took a math major. I enjoyed math. And uh, let me just say this. Even though I enjoyed math, I failed at trying to teach math to my son in homeschooling. So <laughs> failure there. Whatever, whatever that's worth, that went kablooey. Um, I went back one summer to work in a camp in the ministry over there, and as a typical child that returns home, everything, nothing's the same, and I saw ministry totally differently, and I came back with the understanding of the Lord, with what you've given to me, I can't go and just live my life to pursue a young man's dream of flying or a young man's dream of doing this or that. I can only take what you've given to me and be responsible for that I love these people. I love the word. If I could be serving ministry here, Lord, allow me to do so. And I retooled and went back to the field. But one of the driving pieces in my heart, even as an 18-year-old, was I'm responsible for what God's given to me. What has God given to you? What giftings and abilities has he given to you? Are you using them for the kingdom? How are you using them? God's given you spiritual abilities. How are you using them for the kingdom? You know, clearly we know the parable of the talent. Well, they weren't given to be buried and hope that when he returns, okay, Lord, let me, let me dig this up again. Well, there it is. How are you serving the kingdom? How are you serving the body? How are you serving the church of Christ? How are you taking what's been given to you and being accountable for that and answering for that? We've got three or four minutes left here. If a, I'll put a, a few a few concluding thoughts, but that, that's maybe that even today in your in, in your prayer time could could just be those two thoughts. Lord, how can I be pleasing as unto you, and Lord, I'm going to answer for what's been given to me, and I'm accountable for that. How am I using that for to advance your 
your purposes. But a couple of thoughts. Let me see. I forget if I have one more slide or not. Yeah, I do. Well, the unbeliever faced final judgment. I think that might be the last last thought here. I just look at Romans two in a second. A few concluding thoughts. One. If a person does not know the Lord and a person does not belong to Christ, if a person has not trusted in the blood of the Lamb and the Son of God so that he is in Christ, he's clothed in his righteousness, and the books that will be opened in the final judgment will be books of condemnation. For there is none righteous, no, not one. No one is saved by the records of his deeds. The implication of 2 Corinthians 5 is not that we're going to be weighed by the, we're not going to be saved by the record of our deeds here. Romans 2 says God will render to each according to his works. It doesn't mean that he, that works save us, that there's going to be more good works than, than, than bad works or good works at the end. But the works that are recorded will be proof of a changed life. The evidence of the works that are worthy and not worthless will be proof of a changed life. A tree is not good because it bears good fruit. A tree bears good fruit. Because it is a manifestation of regeneration. And I think the beauty, the, the thing I pulled out from this that, that blessed me, that I, I learned from this, is I've often understood this the idea, okay, making sure that, my, that, that I'm, I'm going to give an account for the deeds that I've committed in the body and responsible for the gifts that God's given to me. Am I using them for his glory? Is my life ambitious and driven for the Lord to please him? I understood that. But I... There's an additional piece here that was a blessing to me that the books are going to record not my good deeds in the sense that to manifest my goodness, they're going to be deeds that will be put on display as evidences of God's grace in my life. It's not this, in the end, wow, I, I was a good soldier, I did the good thing, and, I, and it, why? Why? And evidence of that is that as we're rewarded for, as crowns are given to it, what do we do with them? Well, thank you, I earned it. We put him right back at the foot of Christ because he's the one that merits glory because he's the one that enabled us through his grace, through his mercy to do anything useful to begin with. So we put that right back at his feet. Harold Nash's memorial service on Friday was... uh, was a blessing, and, and as I mentioned, Brian was talking and then speaking for Second Corinthians five. I was reminded of one thing: when I was looking at the memorial piece. You guys may have already heard. You know, uh, Piper has a sermon. I forget what it's called, but basically he talks about the dash. Anybody ever heard that one? Basically, on a tombstone. And I saw that when I, when I saw Harold's picture there. You know, nineteen forty-two dash twenty twenty-four. Piper has a sermon, very passionate sermon, because everything Piper says is passionate, right? Uh, very passionate sermon. He says, what do you do with the dash? Because your whole life is but that dash. From 1942, in his case, to 2024. Um, don't live your lives. We, we have one life to live. We know it. Live it as unto the Lord, knowing that <clears throat> we seek to please him. And uh, one day we will stand before him and give an account. Uh, he, he put these last words in his uh, obituary here uh, that I thought was fitting for, for Harold. And part of the admonition of memorial service is rejoicing in the fact that he faces, he, he went from this earthly tent 
that was quickly deteriorate into the presence of God. And the words they put down here, it says, Don't grieve for me, for now I am free. I'm following the path God laid for me. I took his hand when I heard him call. I turned my back and I left it all. I could not stay another day to laugh, to love, to work or play. Task undone, must stay that way. I found that peace at close of day. So just a, a, a beautiful testimony of a man who lived, in his, lived his life pleasing as unto the Lord. May, may we do so as well. May, may, this, may this passage push us and, and encourage, encourages us to, towards, towards that end. Father, we are thankful for Paul. Paul's a, a passionate writer. Paul did not was Paul did not have a, a vocational apostolic ministry. He did what he did out, out of passion and zeal for the Savior. Lord, in, in, in all these admonitions that we saw last week and this week of, of why he did not lose heart, because first and foremost he he had an eternal perspective that the life that he lived in this tent that is fading away will be replaced with a heavenly dwelling. And that, Lord, in doing so, that the life that he lives now has one aim and one purpose only, that in this tent we might please you. Because, Lord, we will give an account. And as we do, we want the works that will be examined to manifest the grace of God in our lives, that all glory and praise might be given to you. Thank you, Lord, for, for this passage. May it encourage our hearts to walk not by sight but by faith. And we trust you this for this, Lord. We commit these things to you. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>